player one, welcome to the Gaming History Club. My name is Gabby. Hello, and I'm JP. You can keep your coins in your pocket this time around player one. This one is on us. Here is the golden age of the arcade. Wait, did I have to pay the first time? JP, so do you want to tell us where we left off from the episode one, the birth of the arcade video game? Absolutely. Well, let me just tell player one, if you haven't listened to episode one, I highly suggest that you do before you carry on here. But where did we leave off last time? So we were discussing how arcade video games still had a quite negative perception around them. Arcade games were still mostly in bars, lounges and amusement parks. So adult only places, really. The market consisted mostly of Pong clones, mm -hmm. both in the arcade and at home with Pong consoles. I should also mention, we did make a slight mistake in episode one. We were calling Magnavox Odyssey's version of Pong table tennis for two. It was actually just called table tennis. Oh, uh, okay. I still thought it was going to be tennis for two, too. Yeah, I mean, uh, it sucks that it wasn't actually called that because I thought we were being really hilarious. But uh, what, what can you do, right? Well, let's get into the golden age. Finally, at last, here we are. Where uh, are we going to start, JP? Where are we going to start? So before we get into the golden age of the arcade, let's take a really quick pit stop in 1976. And let's talk about Breakout. Breakout was developed by Atari and it was a means to compete against the other companies making all of these Pong clones that we talked about. Bushnell wanted to make a single player version of Pong using Pong hardware. So Nolan Bushnell walks into his office in Atari one day and asks all of his technicians, which one of you is up for the challenge of making single-player Pong? Apparently Steve Jobs answered the call and promised to have a working prototype within, hear this, four days. Wow. Yeah, the Steve Jobs, by the way. The Steve Jobs. Yeah, I'm not talking about another Steve Jobs. You're like... talking about Mr. iPhone, I co-founded Apple Steve Jobs. Oh, yeah. That's the one. Okay. Yeah, and that's not going to be the only Steve I'm talking about today. Nolan actually offered an additional reward for Steve if he can make the game using less TTL computer chips, so as little TTL chips as possible. Steve sought help from a friend who worked in Hewlett Packard at that time because this friend was able to make a version of Pong using 30 chips. And that friend is Steve Wozniak. Ooh, so now we got two of the three co-founders of Apple, huh? Exactly, yes. <laughs> nice. So most Atari games at that time were made using 150 to 170 chips. So Breakout was made according to the deadline, the promised four days, and they were able to use just 42 chips to make the game. But that was overachieving on their part because Atari was struggling to manufacture the board this way and it was just too compact and too complicated for their manufacturing methods. So they had to redesign it with 100 chips actually. And Steve Wozniak commented that it didn't change the game in any, in any way, shape or form. So the game was just the same. By the way, Breakout, uh, Breakout is a game where your paddle is now uh, floating around horizontally at the bottom of the screen. Mm -hmm. And when you deflect the ball, you're going to hit some bricks at the top of the screen. Mm -hmm. And it's going to come back to you, and then you deflect it, and you're going to hit more bricks until you clear the screen. Interestingly enough, they used some of the themes, design language, and 
you know, coloring. It inspired them to make the Apple II computer, actually. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I say to make the Apple II computer. It didn't inspire them to make the Apple II computer. It yeah. inspired... The design. The design, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Funnily enough as well, just before this happened, Steve Jobs was actually... He was already working for Atari for, for a little while. And he took a extended leave to learn how to meditate in India. Yeah, and then he came back and basically he worked for Atari again. Yeah. And made breakout. I heard a rumor that Steve Jobs does not actually like video games all that much, you know. Oh, really? I mean, he definitely ended up changing his career path away from Atari that way, didn't he? I mean, co-founding Apple. Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah. So now that we discussed Breakout, the reason I wanted to touch on Breakout really quickly, apart from it being quite interesting in terms of yeah, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak taking part of this, is because the golden age actually starts with the game that we're going to talk about next. In 1978, most people would agree that this is where the golden age officially started. It is debated a little bit sometimes, but most people will agree this is where it definitely started. Breakout inspired the game developer, who would make the skin that we're talking about now. Mm -hmm. Let's take a quick cruise flight over to Japan and meet Tomohiro Nishikado, who made this game over the course of a year, manufactured and sold by Taito. Not four days. Not four days. Okay. No, he took his time. He took a year. He was inspired by War of the Worlds, Star Wars, and games such as Gunfight and Breakout. Tomohiro wanted to create a game with the same sense of achievement and intention from destroying targets one at a time, and combining that with elements of shooting games, but also expanding on interactive elements he felt were missing in games at the time, like the ability for enemies to react to the player and fire back, and a game over triggered by enemies killing the player. That's all the hints I'm going to give to you. If you haven't guessed it by now, we're talking about Space Invaders. So Space Invaders was a massive success, but let's talk about why it was a massive success, because Space Invaders put a lot of firsts into the video game arcades, mm -hmm. right? Many firsts. Let's list some of these, right? It was the first fixed shooter video game and it set a template for the shoot-em-up genre. It was the first game to save high scores. It revolutionized music and gaming because now you've got music and sound effects which directly relate to the player's actions and increase in tempo as the game gets harder, all happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. It was the first of multiple enemies that could fire back at the player. It was the first where you have multiple lives. It was the first where you repel a horde of enemies. You can take cover from enemy fire and use destructible barriers. But most importantly for us, it shifted games away from bars and amusement arcades to absolutely everywhere. We're talking bowling alleys, movie theaters, laundromats, supermarkets, even dentists and some doctor's offices had space invaders there. And this obviously led to a bit of a snowball effect as well, because once you may be able to like stay away from an amusement park, arcade, or a bar, you're not going to stay away from a supermarket for a very long time, are you? That's true. It's more widely available, making games a lot more accessible for more people. Gabby, hit us with some numbers. It was the best-selling and highest-grossing game ever at that time. All currency adjusted for inflation, just remember that. By the end of 78, when the game was released, there were 100,000 machines installed and it grossed $3 billion. Wow. And that's the same year. There were 8 million daily players in Japan. Daily revenue peaking at 54 million. That's a lot of money for one day. 
Struggling to keep up with the demand, they finally licensed Midway to distribute the arcade machines overseas. By 1982, it had grossed over 13 billion actually, so that game really made a lot of money. I find interesting how you say by the end of 78, they installed 100,000 machines. Yeah. I think I remember right from episode one when they were talking about Computer Space and Pong being released, how oh, yeah. a successful arcade machine would sell up to 2,000, but some have been known to reach up to 10,000. Yeah. And now we're talking about Space Invaders and it sold 100,000 in the first year. That's why this is the start of the golden age. An arcade machine's owner would actually be able to make up for the cost of the machine in under one month, in some places in just one week. Wow, must be so popular. Several big name game developers cited Space Invaders as their introduction to video games, including Shigeru Miyamoto from Donkey Kong, Mario and Zelda fame, Hideo Kojima, known for Metal Gear Solid, Satoshi Taijiri, Pokemon, and John Romero and John Carmack, who made Doom. It inspired Eugene Jarvis, who's actually one of my favorite game designers. He made two of my favorite video game arcade machines, Defender and Robotron 2084. Oh, yeah. yeah, He says that it laid the groundwork for a whole generation of video games, with the animated characters, the story, this amazing crescendo of action and climax, and that many games still rely on the multiple life, progressive difficult level paradigm of Space Invaders. Yeah, and also the Deus Ex creator War Inspector said Space Invaders and Game Like It represent the roots of everything we see today in gaming. It represents the birth of a new art form, one that literally changed the world. Space Invaders is important as an historical artifact, no less than the silent films of the early 20th century or early printed books. Oh man, that is such a great quote actually, isn't it? One interesting bit of trivia I know about Space Invaders is that you know how when you shoot the enemies after a while, they're going to start scrolling down the screen quicker. Yeah. So that was actually a bug in the game at first because there's less characters on the screen. Therefore, the hardware is processing less information. So mm -hmm. it's able to do the animating quicker. But Tomohiro actually decided, I'm going to keep this in because I think this really adds value to the gameplay experience. Ah, okay. So this bug is now a feature. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, yeah, but that actually adds up a lot to to the excitement playing Space Invaders, so really good decision to keep it there. What I really love about Space Invaders is that I think that's the oldest game that I could actually see myself playing for like a long time, if yeah. that was the only thing available to me. I don't think I would have played a huge amount of Pong or Death Race or Gunfight, but I could have seen myself playing a lot of Space Invaders, definitely. Yeah, that's yeah. because of the high scores, probably. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Getting competitive, yeah. Exactly. With yourself, though. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on now to the next year, 1979, and we're going to be talking about Galaxian. Yes, we are the Galaxians. Mission? Destroy Aliens. Oh, it's got a good intro screen, doesn't it? I love that game. So Galaxian was designed by Kazunori Zawano and it was developed and published by Namco. The player assumes control of a starfighter in its mission to protect Earth from waves of aliens. So Space Invaders actually came out early during the game's development. 
and due to its massive success, the president of Namco, Masai Nakamura, asked Sawano to make the best post-Invaders game that they could. Mm -hmm. So they obviously put the development team under massive pressure, okay? So they heavily improved on graphics and interactivity introduced by Space Invaders. And I mean, this is a massive graphical leap. Now we actually are seeing individual objects mm -hmm. having different colors, looking sharper. The enemies would actually have personality now. So you would get the enemies sometimes just come dive bombing towards you and start shooting at you. Just in general, the game is just so colorful. If you want to take a look at Space Invaders for just one minute, take a look on YouTube, just watch Space Invaders, just take one minute, and then immediately afterwards, just put on one minute of Galaxian and just keep in mind that this was just one year difference. It is quite mind-boggling, yeah, actually. that's true. And mm. the game looks really beautiful. It's so nice to see with the scrolling background of the shining stars and just keep scrolling, making you think that you're moving, making that effect yeah. like you're moving. Interestingly enough, Nintendo would adopt this technology into their home consoles later on as well. So next, let's take a look at Asteroids that was also released in 1979. But this time we're going back to America. This game was developed by Atari, designed by Lyle Rains and Edlock. Asteroids actually displaced Space Invaders as being the most successful video game at the time. And I think I can see kind of why. Right, Gabby? Yeah, um, you actually have more freedom flying around and slightly crazier combat because you can just move around and shoot around to all directions. We also see some of Atari's style trying to innovate the games that they're making, right? So this is one of the examples of vector graphics. Which, Vector, if you remember back to episode one, we were talking about oscilloscopes. Mm -hmm. uh, so Vector graphics, very similar deal. So you're shooting a laser at the screen rather than lighting up pixels. That's true. Yeah. What we mean with more freedom is, so you can thrust your starship around to anywhere on the screen that you like. And even if you leave the screen, you'll just pop out at the other side. And you're shooting these asteroids and they break into smaller asteroids. There's a crazy alien spaceship that once in a while hovers around. You got to get that one too. It feels a little bit more faster paced, I'd say, than Space Invaders. And I think just being able to move around the entire screen anywhere you like, I can see why that was overtaking Space Invaders in popularity. Yeah, definitely. And you can see that as well with the world record that was set with asteroids. Because you know what? In 2010, John McAllister broke the longest standing video game world record. So previously, it was actually held for 27 years by a 15-year-old Scott Safran set in 1982 with a high score of 41,838,740. And you know how long did he actually play to set up that record? I mean, like 20 hours? <laughs> no, 58 hours. 58 yes. hours? And he actually did it in, on internet live stream at that time. So he managed to beat the previous record by 2,000 points. Man, and that took him 58 hours? Yes, exactly. I mean, the patience. I are... hope the Scott Saffron didn't set the record in like just two hours and now... Poor no, John no, no, is no, taking no. 58 <laughs> just to beat him. <laughs> no, he also stayed that long, to be honest. So it's kind of almost the same. Wow, I don't even want to know how that works exactly. A 58-hour live I stream. I know, yeah. I, I read that he had to collect a lot of extra lives. So during all of those... Ah. Yeah, so when he had a lot of extra lives, he's just going to stop for a bit, eating some sandwiches and move around a little bit to stretch. 
and then go back to it again. <laughs> wow, that's a boss move. I know. <laughs> wow, that's very impressive. So let's close 1970s out and let's enter the 80s. I wish we could play some really cool synth wave, flash pop music right now. Yeah, but, it's appropriate. Ah, uh, <laughs> if only. Games are becoming more inspired and we're going to see a shift away from all the space and shooting themes. And we're going to stick with Japan for a little while because Japan is now offering a fresh perspective and innovates the industry using their own cultural heritage and aesthetics to influence video games forever. Setting a lot of foundational concepts that we take for granted these days. Colors are becoming more widespread following Galaxian. Games are space invading places outside of the arcades, so they're accessible to a larger number of the public. And the arcade boom that began in the late 70s is credited with establishing the basic techniques of interactive entertainment and for driving down hardware prices to the extent of allowing the personal computer to become a technological and economic reality. Woohoo! Go PC! Let's talk about the 80s. What is the first game that we're going to be talking about? Probably the most important and best-selling arcade video game of all time. Which one is it, Gabby? Tell we're us. We're coming to something circle and something yellow. None other than Pac-Man. Designed by Toro Iwatani and a nine-man team, took one and a half years to actually complete the longest ever for a video game to be made. So Iwatani chose to create a non-violent, cheerful video game that appealed mostly to women, as he believed that actually attracting women and couples into arcade would potentially make them appear to be more family-friendly in turn, erasing all of those negativity behind arcade video games at that time. Iwatani began thinking of things that women like to do in their time. He decided to center his game around eating, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Basing this on women liking to eat desserts and other sweets. You know what? I'm not going to speak it's true for, for, you. for all it's women. It's true for you. It's true for you me. You can say what you like. It's true for I you. I know. <laughs> exactly. Give me my chocolate now. He envisioned simple gameplay and cute, attractive character designs. We can start seeing a massive shift now in video games. This is a real turning point because now we have our first original gaming mascot. And it's demonstrating the potential for characters in the medium. No longer are we nameless starship number 79. That's true. And attacking nameless alien face from no backstory whatsoever. Yeah. We are now Pac-Man. Yeah. Call me Pac-Man, who yeah. likes eating. <laughs> Even the ghosts, they're characters. They've got personalities. So we got Blinky, Pinky, Inky, and Clyde. And they actually have deterministic AI. So did you know that they all chase Pac-Man using a different approach? Oh, I didn't know that. But actually, that would make sense. Yeah, because otherwise they'd all just kind of go in the same direction. Exactly, right? yeah. Yeah, so it turns out Blinky gives direct chase to Pac-Man. Pinky and Inky try to position themselves in front of him, so usually by cornering him. And Clyde will switch between chasing Pac-Man and fleeing away from him. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I feel like that's such a revolutionary move because it gives a lot more character to the game. Like, what even what the enemies can do. If we think about the interactivity as well, because again, this is decided directly by what the player is doing on the screen, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's just so cool. A lot of the programmers that were working on the AI for Pac-Man ended up working for Bethesda. Oh, I'm wondering what game it would be. 
that yeah, they were working on. I wonder that too. Yeah, that would be interesting to know. Hmm. Pac-Man was also the first in a lot of other areas. So it was the first game to feature power-ups. This was actually inspired by Popeye eating spinach. It was the first game to have cutscenes, so little interludes between levels, little quippy interludes. Yeah, okay, so yeah. transition stuff. Yeah, that's right. The impressive thing about Pac-Man, Pac-Man is still the best-selling arcade games of all time to this day. It also remains as the 16th most sold game at 42 million plus sales. It is the oldest game in the current top 50 games list. Wait. Wow, that is impressive. Yeah, so Pac-Man actually spawned a lot of merchandise as it entered popular culture. Yeah, with over 500 plus related products. Probably. You didn't count them all, did you? No, I wish I did. Really? Yeah, but it's a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's referenced a lot in non-related entertainment, like, you know, the Gorilla song. Oh, that's such a good song. Yeah, it actually commemorated the 40th anniversary of Pac-Man. Ah, Yeah, and okay. we love that song. Yeah, so this is what they actually used to call Pac-Mania back in the day, huh? I know that Namco America decided to change the original name before it was released in America. So at first the game was Pokemon in Japan, right? Ah, right. Okay, so is that why we saw both versions? Of the arcade, actually. Yeah, that's right. So over here in Europe, you, you will be able to see some cabinets that say Pokemon and then others that say Pac-Man. Mm -hmm. The reason America didn't want to call it Pokemon is that because of if you changed the way the P looks into an F, that would obviously be rather embarrassing and not very family-friendly in tone whatsoever. That's true, yeah. If it got vandalized... There's a story about an eight-year-old who claimed to have gotten the high score, by the way, from San Francisco. But he he was claiming to have got more than five million points. And that was because of a bug in the game that was not actually possible to achieve, right? Oh, so it wasn't true. No, but the president at the time, Ronald Reagan, actually sent him a congratulating letter for his achievement. So now that we talked about Pac-Man, let's talk about one of my big heroes in games. Shigeru Miyamoto in his first game with Nintendo in 1981, it is of course Donkey Kong. Donkey Kong is Shigeru Miyamoto's first time being a video game developer. It was the first game he developed, obviously he would later on become a producer, and then later on again, he would become the game director for Nintendo. This was a response to Namco's Pac-Man in an attempt to break out into the North American market, drawing inspiration from Beauty and the Beast, Popeye and King Kong. They broke new ground by using graphics as a means of characterization, including cutscenes to advance the game's overarching plot. So that's gonna sound a little bit like what Pac-Man did, but Nintendo expanded on that. The graphics were used to portray feelings of the characters. You know, they were using body language. Yeah. It wasn't like Pac-Man just opening and closing his mouth, right? Yeah. They were actually, you, you can imagine Donkey Kong with his big grindy face pounding on his chest, you know, like, Urgh. And also with the cutscenes, we're now talking about an overarching plot. Between levels, the cutscenes glue together the story rather than it just being like a cute little interlude. Yeah, that's true. So it's no longer just a transition. It's literally part of the story. Donkey Kong actually pioneered the platform game genre before the term even existed. And its success positioned Nintendo for market dominance from 81 until the late 90s. It also marked the first appearance of our beloved Mario. Who was still known as Jumpman. Yeah, that's true. So he got no name yet. 
Well, his name is Jumpman. Oh that, yeah, literally, that's the name. <laughs> you never, you never met anyone called Jumpman Peterson. <laughs> I wish I have a friend called Jumpman Peterson. <laughs> Another one, Pauline, not Peach, Pauline. Yeah, that's right, Pauline. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Another few games to mention coming out in Japan at the time using characterization. Frogger from 1981, developed by Konami and manufactured by Sega. Yeah, a game that I am. Really, really bad art. And these Japanese character-driven games were influencing some American games as well coming out at the time. So noteworthy mention would be Centipede from 1980. I know you like Centipede yeah, very I much. Yeah, I love Centipede. Special shout out to Centipede, by the way. Donna Bailey. She was one of the first few female game programmers in the industry, and was one of the few American women at the time with any experience in assembly language programming. I think her influence made this one of the first games with a big female player base as well. Good on you, Donna. And Cubert from 1982, a game which I really am shockingly bad at, yeah, by the way. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. It seems that any time where you just, all you have to do is move a character around... I turn out to be really bad at that somehow. I know. So now let's head back to the West a little bit. We discussed how Atari was leading the way in innovation and being more experimental with their games. So let's give a few examples of games that was made by Atari in the early 80s. So we got Missile Command from 1980, and this tapped into the Cold War anxiety of nuclear threat. The game consisted of controlling three bases, and you had a rolling ball to move the crosshair around and you were intercepting nuclear missiles. I shouldn't laugh at this, but the game developer Dave Fuhrer, he said he began having nightmares about cities being bombarded. And apparently he still does occasionally as well. Oh, literally still creating anxiety, this game. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I really like this game. It really puts you in the zone and I actually get a sense of dread as well somehow playing that game, even though I don't have any Cold War anxiety of nuclear threat, right? But even for me, I get that sense. It, that game is really cool. Yeah. Let's talk about Berserk. This one also came out in 1980. This one featured voice synthesis to portray talking robots. That was really expensive at the time to make happen, by the way. If we adjust that for inflation, we're talking about $3,500 per word. And the English version of Berserk has 30 words in it. It was also the first time a death was reported as being caused by video games. However, this wasn't actually the case as it later turned well, out. I was about to say, I hope that wasn't true. <laughs> no, there have been cases where deaths did occur due to video games directly, but this was not the first time that happened. The victim actually suffered from a heart attack, but he had scarring of the heart, the coroner found out, and if he had done any physical exertion whatsoever, he would have unfortunately passed away from that. So it wasn't because of the video game directly. Oh, right. Yeah. Battlezone, another game from 1980, actually. 1980 was a huge, huge year for games, wasn't it? That's true. So I know we both actually played Battlezone. Well, I actually played Battlezone. You couldn't quite reach the periscope. That's true. I am apparently too short to reach the periscope of the battle zone. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also, to be honest with you, the joystick was so heavy. Yeah, so just to explain uh, Battlezone to you guys. So this is actually the first virtual reality game, but instead of having <laughs> futuristic headset glasses that you can put on your head, you actually stick your head into a cabinet instead, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but <laughs> it, uh, it had vector graphics and you are a tank 
And you've got these two big joysticks with fire buttons on top of them and you can move the tank around and yeah, shoot at other tanks. Really cool that was sticking your head into the periscope if you can actually reach. Oh, thank you for rubbing <laughs> <laughs> I could see it from the side though and it was really cool. Yeah, right. Bowzone looks really cool. Let's fast forward a few years. Let's uh, talk about Dragon Slayer from 1983. That was also massively successful. And luckily for them, they decided that this was going to be the first time where they charged two quarters rather than just one quarter. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. This actually used Laserdisc. It was really good at the time. It could hold a lot of information. So it allowed this game to look uh, just like a Disney movie, to be honest. It was also the first time that you had quick time events happening in games, which I've never been a big fan of, if I'm being honest. Yeah, that's true, me too. But yeah. Dragon Slayer is a lovely game. One more example from Atari. This one is 1984. It's called iRobot, but it has nothing to do with iRobot and more with 1984. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. George Orwell's 1984. That's right. That's yeah. right. You are unhappy interface robot 1984 that rebels against Big Brother. And this game was way ahead of its time. So this is the first time we have real-time, flat-shaded, 3D, polygon graphics. But the game flopped. Nobody was playing this game, right? I think it was due to it being ahead of its time, though. So That's I suggest, true. once you've looked at Space Invaders and then Galaxian and compared it to, to see how far one year will take you, please also take a look at iRobot 1984. It is a fantastic looking game for its time. Yeah, I thought it was really impressive, actually. Yeah. But in the West, it wasn't just Atari anymore leading the way in the arcade game innovation. Midway was also finding success with some arcade classics, such as Mrs. Pac-Man. That it, came out in 1981. Yeah, because yeah, if you remember, Namco gave Midway the license to release the games abroad, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they also released Mrs. Pac-Man. They also released Defender. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I know you like Defender. Um, that was um, in 1981. It was held as one of the most, if not the most difficult arcade game to play. I would admit that game is so difficult to play actually. Um, it consisting of five buttons and one joystick, horizontal scrolling shooter. It was Dark Souls for the arcades <laughs> back then, you know what I mean? Yeah, okay, I can I can totally attest to that. <laughs> you love it though. I love everything about that game. That's true, and another game that you actually really love, which is Robotron. It was oh. released on... <laughs> It was released in 1982, and it has twin-stick shooter, both Defender and Robotron, made by Eugene Jarvis, by the way, the one that you mentioned. Yeah, before researching for this episode, I actually never realized that. I was thinking, maybe I just like the games made by Midway. But then I realized, nah, I just like the games made by this game developer, Eugene. <laughs> That's true. I would say Robotron is really, really beautiful. Oh, Robotron is great. Yes, you got one stick to move your character around. Mm -hmm. And with the other joystick, you aim in any direction and shoot. Funnily enough, this actually came because of a broken hand or wrist situation for Eugene as well. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't the first twin stick shoot at the time, but the experience still inspired him to make the uh, gameplay this way. Yeah. The best thing about Robotron is when you clear a level, you basically get a whole bunch of like multicolored square lights shooting you in the face with this amazing amazing sound effect. That's true. Definitely ah. check it out. If you're not photosensitive, definitely check that out because it's so impressive. Please it's do. so beautiful. It's absolutely hypnotizing. You'll <laughs> love it. 
Yeah, and uh, one more, Tron from 1982. So this actually consisted of four sub-games and it made more money than the movie it was based on. Okay, okay. Yeah. So now we talked about the early 80s. Unfortunately, in 82, it has since been recognized that that was the height of success for the video game arcades. From 83 onwards, we actually see a steady decline together with the video game crash that happened in the home console market, Mm -hmm. but for different reasons. We were not going to see the arcade quite like the way it used to be anymore, and this is what we would consider the end of the golden age already. There's so many more fantastic games we could have been talking about. We have to keep it snappy. We just chose some games to really highlight the key milestones that games have had in the golden age. People think that the reason the golden age stopped this way is because... Gamers wanted newer and novel games, but that would mean that older games would have to be replaced, right? That's true. But the new games weren't always automatically just as successful as some of the old games that came out. Gamers wanted more of a challenge, right? They wanted a little bit more of Defender and less of Pac-Man to some extent. But this would also cause the less skilled mainstream players to be turned off by the arcade experience. And although arcades had taken steps to appear more family fun centers, parents and activists still saw video games as potentially addictive and leading to aggressive behavior. I definitely disagree with aggressive behavior, but I can sort of understand the scare behind it being potentially addictive. Nowadays, when I see all these stories about microtransactions happening on smartphones, (laughs) um, although uh, we're not parents, I I can definitely see why that might be a scare. (laughs) Yeah, That's very true. Yeah. Many cities and towns in America actually had bans on arcades now. Several of these bans were challenged on First Amendment grounds, asserting that video game merits protection as an art form but most of these challenges were unsuccessful. Arcade video game revenue was at $8 billion in 81, okay? But by 84, it is halved to $4 billion. So yeah, while $4 billion is a lot of money, it is just half after three years. Yeah, it was kind of short-lived. By 1986, the arcades managed to recover quite a fair bit thanks to the beat-em-up genre now being really popular with people. So we've got games like Kung Fu Master, Double Dragon, Final Fight, and we also see these advanced motion simulator games, which is just fancy talk for like a moving chair basically. (laughs) So when when you're playing some racing games like, you know, Burner and Outrun, and they could simulate motion happening for the player. By the way, Outrun, yeah, also obviously inspired synthwave quite a fair bit. So sometimes people call synthwave music Outrun music. Oh, that's the nice thing. Yeah, Outrun is cool. But then actually the home console market started picking up pace as well. So we've got the NES, for example. So following the crash of 1983, the NES came out, made by Nintendo in 84. So this, again, caused a decline for the arcade because, yeah, well, why would you want to play Donkey Kong in the arcade if you can play... Super Mario Brothers at home, right? The 90s saw arcade games using the modern fighting game template as set by Street Fighter 2, with a number of similar games being released such as Mortal Kombat, Tekken, and Virtual Fighter. It was also during this time that we see the 3D revolution happening, and the arcade games being technologically more advanced still than the home console market was at the time. You were able to witness a 3D game earlier if you go to the arcade than if you waited for a home video game console. So. PlayStation 1 and Nintendo 64, for example, 
they weren't the first home consoles that were able to do 3D. Mm -hmm. But they were the first two popular ones that were able to make 3D. These were the ones that people actually bought in the end. So the PlayStation 1, for example, came out in 1995. Mm -hmm. The Nintendo 64 came out the following year in 96, but you could play Virtual Fighter, which was a 3D game, in the arcade already in 1993. Oh. So the arcade was still a little bit ahead of the curve back in those days. Yeah, compared to home consoles. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Seeing it in more modern times, since the 2000s, arcade games have taken different routes globally. Arcade games become a niche market as they compete with the home console market as they have adapted to other business models, such as providing other entertainment options or adding price redemptions. I still remember I went to the arcade just to get some tickets to be exchanged, to get some plushies, for example, or pencil from like nonsense prices, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sometimes you get a pencil. pencil. Yeah, a pencil. Was it a pretty pencil? No, it wasn't. It's so sad. But honestly, you went to the arcade just to exchange all of these tickets from playing, basically. Okay. In Japan and China, arcades continue to flourish. Games like Dance Dance Revolution and House of the Dead aim to deliver a tailored experience that players cannot easily have at home. Yeah, because I always went to the arcade to play Dance Dance Revolution back then. I find people who are good at these games like freakishly scary, and I'll tell you why, okay? Like, you, for example, are really good at DDR, and you, oh, yeah. and you, you will not play DDR for like, you know, years sometimes, but then when you go to the arcade... It's like you've been practicing for like the last five years of your <laughs> life or something to win some competition. It's like our good friend Tom who made our theme tune. Like I was watching him play Rock Band. It's freakishly crazy how good he is. He was so guitar good. Hero. <laughs> so Gabby, I mean, we could talk a little bit about our personal experiences uh, in the arcades. I mean, obviously we are both children of the 90s being born in the early 90s That's so uh, we kind of skipped past the golden age unfortunately but we we still went into the arcades uh, especially as part of our research <laughs> <laughs> that's true actually both um, as part of the research and also we just like going there yeah of course yeah yeah i think the experience is really different compared to back then um, that experience slotting coins to the machine definitely didn't exist in the arcade that we went to. Yeah, that's right. So we went into quite a large arcade and that seems to have a bit of everything. So you pay an entry fee, mm -hmm. but then once you're inside, you can play any game you like for however long you like. You, you don't need to insert coins. You just press start and you go. And they had a little bit of everything. So the real old games, the real new ones from Japan, and sort of everything in between as well, actually. You That's know, like true. fighting games from the 90s, Outrun, these crazy rhythm games that they don't even have an English translation. I so, know. unless you're I already was a, so confused. Unless you're already a pro, you don't even understand what's going on. Um, actually, I remember there was, there was one dude in there playing one of these Japanese rhythm games where you just. I think touch and swipe and things like that, right? Yeah. And there, he, he attracted a small crowd of people because he was... Really good and really fast. It was super fast, yeah. I guess I realize going to the arcade nowadays that I'm still drawn towards the old school games instead. Also, a thing that we should mention is that nowadays, um, I mean, I've seen this happen quite a few times now. You get 
I don't even know what you call them, but you get like video game bars, right? So instead of like arcade machines, although they will sometimes also have arcade machines, you can go in, you can get yourself some drinks and some food, and they'll sit you down in front of a sofa or a bench or, and you can play some, you know, like Xbox or PlayStation, so home consoles, but in a bar. Yeah. Uh, so that's also really interesting how somehow it's... It's going back yeah. to how it was. <laughs> yeah. And also you get people who are crazy about collecting arcade machines and they put them in their home. So I think people are like just uh, very confused right now. That's true. <laughs> so Player One, I hope you enjoyed our journey through the history of arcade video games. We traveled from World War Two to the modern day, making a few mistakes on the way. But we got there in the end. Yeah. New episodes of Gaming History Club are released every second Wednesday, so make sure you subscribe and follow us on our social media. Say hi to us by visiting our website, gaminghistory.club, and let us know what topics you'd like to hear. Special shout out to Rob, Ben, and Miska, who have reached out to us with fantastic suggestions. We can't wait to cover in the near future. So get ready to inspect every pixel closely, Player One will be just a few clicks away. See you next time.